Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. This special episode of Urbane Cowboys is a simulcast of the Brown Pundits with our friend Razeev Khan. We chat about impeachment, the landscape of conservative media, and more. Have a listen and go Astros. Hey everybody, this is Razib Khan with the Brown Pundits Browncast, and I am here with the Urbane Cowboys, Doug McCullough and Josiah Neely. Um, and, you know, most of you who have listened know who Doug and Josiah are, so uh, I don't know if I need to introduce them, but Doug and Josiah, do you want to say a few words about yourself to the newbies? Howdy, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, I give that's definitely not for a newbie, but um, yeah, um, we all know what that's about. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on on the right here in the United States, um, mostly just because, um, you know, I haven't talked to Doug and Josiah about this in a while. And I don't know, you know, I'm focused on what I'm doing and I'm kind of a just like a casual observer, but there's a lot that's going on. So Doug and Josiah are both lawyers. So I want to ask them, first of all, um, we're going to talk about a few things here, uh, but the first thing I want to ask is, like, what's going on with impeachment? Uh, do they have any opinions as lawyers? Uh, yes. So I do have uh, one op- uh, opinion about impeachment as a lawyer, which is that uh, impeachment is a political process. So, you know, le- legal opinions are of very little value. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I'd echo that. Um, and, you know, and then there's this uh, letter from the uh, Trump's, I guess, White House counsel that was trying to make all these constitutional claims and trying to invoke uh, all the pr- rules and procedures that you would expect in a legal proceeding. But that's but Josiah is exactly right. It's a it is a political proceeding and the Constitution gives Congress a great deal of uh, latitude in how they go about it. So. You know, even though the White House counsel's letter was really off base in terms of trying to make this into a procedure that simply doesn't exist. Okay, so basically, um, this is about power. Then, like, do you have the votes? Right. Correct. Um, It's not about. Yeah, and so I mean, like, um, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm assuming that the House will impeach and he'll be not convicted or whatever, uh, whatever it is, um, by the Senate. Right? Does that sound about right? Uh, right. But I mean, I, but I would I would go back and take one step back, which is, I mean, as a starting point, there is, a, you know, we're, the, the criteria is there has to be some high crime or misdemeanor. I think we could probably sort of like, you know, the old adage about pornography, we know it when we see it. I think when it comes to high crime, we probably know that when we see it. But that other side of it about what is a misdemeanor that is an impeachable offense, I think there's. I think that's going to be open to a lot of interpretation, but as a preliminary step, there ought to be something as opposed to we simply have enough votes in the House of Representatives to remove somebody because I don't think that's that's not the constitutional design. I'm, Josiah, do you care to comment on that? Uh, yes. So I would say that when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, uh, you know, they anticipated many different things. One thing that they did not anticipate was the rise of political parties, uh, which in retrospect, perhaps they should have done. And so there are a lot of features of the system that might make a lot more sense if there were no political parties. But once you have the prospect of 
the president is either going to be of the same party or an opposing party of the different houses of Congress, uh, the impeachment system, I, I think it, it very much changes how that's going to work in practice. And so I, I don't, it's, it is unsurprising to me that uh, we have never had a president removed from office via the impeachment process. And the two impeachments that have occurred uh, have, you know, historically have been viewed as kind of uh, more, more uh, political wrangling than, you know, dispassionate consideration of whatever the underlying issues were. All right. Um, okay. So uh, I think um, I want to ask you guys, um, partly because I haven't, I think I can guess what Doug would say. So, you know, we're having this issue um, where the Republicans are extremely angry at President Donald Trump, and it has nothing to do with what he's being impeached about, but it's about abandoning our Kurdish allies in Syria, which um, I'm going to be totally honest, I just assumed it would have happened at some point anyways, because we always do that to them, and that always happens to them. Uh, right? I mean, am I wrong here? No, not yeah, at all. I mean, I just assumed, okay, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're not stupid. They weren't born yesterday. They know, you know? Yeah, and, well, and, and it's also the case, just to take, before, you know, big picture, like, uh, I mean, Kurdistan, it, it, you know, the, the Kurds are a group that would like to have their own state. Oh, we're going to get banned in Turkey now. You just said Kurdistan. Well, they would like to have their own state. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> Kurdistan, the region, the Kurds, they would like to have their own state of Kurdistan that would encompass parts of four existing states, uh, including several U.S. allies. So, I mean, it was never like it's never clear to me like what the uh, path of that happening is. Right. Well, so, I mean, like, so, let, let's be clear here, though. Um, I believe the um, the Kurdish Democratic Party, the, I think the KDP is the one in in Syrian Kurdistan is actually, and this is getting a little in the weeds, but it's actually very, very different from the dominant party in Iraq, and they actually don't get along. Um, the Syrian party is way further left. Yeah, the one in Syria, yeah, they're they're like Maoists yeah, they're like anarcho-communists, right? maybe. You know, right? Yeah, like the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, they're kind of like that. Yeah. And the, the dominant party in Iraqi Kurdistan is more of a, I guess, centrist. There's there's a junior partner that's more leftist, but that that party is actually like centered further to the south and east. So it's not like the two more left wing elements could ever come together. So there's that complication. My question though isn't about you know Kurdistan, which like we all know what would have happened at some point. My question is, why is this what's triggering the Republicans to seethe and rage? Oh, gosh. I, w- I wish that they had been seething and raging about other things before this. Uh, I'm probably not the right person to ask about this, even though you you, you assume that you know what my my response would be uh, when it comes to Kurdistan. Because my particular take is I would like us to, ex- you know, to get our tri- troops out of Syria to the extent possible. But as I, I'm looking at this, I... The information that I found, like this was on Military Times that I saw this morning, that we were only talking like 50 to 100 troops in this particular area, and they weren't withdrawn. They were simply moved to a different part of Syria, if the information that I saw this morning was correct. Um, So this doesn't seem like 
you know, some grand libertarian or Tulsi Gabbard victory of we're bringing the troops home. Uh, it sounds like we just moved them to another area and we greenlighted uh, an attack on our allies, the Kurds. So my, my, I would say my, my view on this is actually relatively nuanced, I guess you could say. I think it was handled very poorly, um, but I, I don't know that I, uh, I... I put it this way. To answer the original question, I think that the, the reason that you know, the Lindsey Grahams of the world are, are up in arms about this is because you know, as Hawks, they're, 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 you know, this is a real um, loss for them that they've sort of lost the ability to direct the president on foreign policy. Maybe they never really had that power, but uh, I think to them, this is a real, uh, a real defeat and maybe a betrayal of, of their worldview. Yeah, I mean, Josiah, what do you think? I've actually never, um, never talked to you, I think, in detail about what your foreign policy views are. I mean, I think I'm more in line, in theory, with Doug a lot of the time. I'm actually not. I mean, it seems Trump made this decision by himself. So this was a royal, royal we. It was not an administration decision. There was no prep for this, right? Um, on the other hand, I don't necessarily oppose a lot of his instinct to let other people fight their own wars um i'm not yeah we did iraq okay like i I don't know what we what the republican party's learned from that i don't know what do you think doug um yeah i i don't know that the republican party has learned that much from iraq um uh, unfortunately um so i you know particularly not the the lindsey grams of the world sort of you know i think that if there's any place where uh, sort of, I don't know if you want to call it neo, neoconservatism, sort of Bush Republicanism, um, still has has sway. I think it's been in the foreign policy space, and maybe this is like the final, uh, the final break from that worldview. Josiah, what are your thoughts? Uh, so, I guess I have a couple thoughts in terms of the decision itself. Uh, I will confess, I I don't really understand it. Uh, just in terms of you know, what's, what's the American interest here? I can certainly, I understand why Turkey would want to do this. Uh, but I don't like, there doesn't, it doesn't seem to be that we got anything in exchange for it. And so, you know, so that's, that's a little curious. Um, as far as like why there's so much opposition, you know, like, I mean, the, the, the Syrian civil war is very, very complicated. I mean, it's not, it's like, it's not a two-sided civil war. It's, uh, you know, multiple different sides, many of which are coalitions of people who don't quite get along. And then all sorts of different foreign powers who are backing different sides. So it's hard, it's hard to make sense of it. I did hear, you know, there were a number of, uh, Christian evangelical leaders who were talking about how this is going to lead to, uh, persecution of Syrian Christians uh, my understanding, I mean, the Kurds are not Christian uh, by and large. And, you know, my understanding is that the northern Syrian region, I mean, I guess there are some like Assyrians or Armenians there maybe, but mostly uh, there's like a lot of Yazidis too, actually, though. Okay, yeah, Look, there Yazidis, the ethnography right? yeah. of this the region Yazidis. of the world is actually its own podcast, so that's right. part of the problem of of Americans <laughs> getting involved because they can't keep track of anything. 
I'm not. I'm not putting yeah. it on you, Josiah. I'm saying everybody. We can't keep track of who's who and who's allied with who. Yeah, right. And it's just it's 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 like the Balkans of the Balkans or something. Right. Yeah. That that's right. And you know, as you mentioned, like, well, the the Iraqi Kurds and the Syrian Kurds, you know, they don't necessarily even get along with each other, right? <laughs> necessarily. So you know, it it it's complicated. Whereas I think a lot of people. They just think of the Kurds, right? So yeah, well, I mean, the, large, the, the largest the number people. of Kurds in the world um, live in Turkey. It's like 20% of Turkey's population. So some of these Turkish soldiers are almost certainly right. ethnic Kurds. So um, I, I feel like people aren't right. thinking about that, too. And, you know, I don't want to throw, like, KDP. I don't care, okay, about Rojova. It's not, it's not like a primary concern of mine. My, my concern and curiosity, though, is, like, why is this the red line for Republicans? Like, why are they using this to get angry because i mean i feel like maybe it's just because they're older i feel like younger people like we've seen what happened with iraq we've now spent what like a trillion on afghanistan we're exhausted left and right you know we're just exhausted by all these commitments but our political elite does not seem like to to be like that at all right yeah I do think, I mean, um, it, so it's a little, it's a little hard to parse out. Um, there definitely, you know, uh, Erdogan, I think is a figure who is viewed with a lot of suspicion by a lot of folks in the Republican party. And, uh, there, you know, there is a kind of like element that says, well, I mean, this is something Turkey wants to do. Uh, presumably it's, it's something that, um, you know, the, there's indications that like, uh, Russia and Iran are favorably disposed to it. We don't like those guys. And so maybe it's just kind of like, well, if they're for it, then it must be really bad. Right. Um, you know, just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, well, I mean, it's not on, just like, Republicans though, right? This level. is like a whole foreign um, policy establishment, um, is unified and opposed. Right. And I just, I, I'm pointing to the Republicans. Even Go on, Doug. Yeah, even Noam Chomsky. Okay, yeah, when you've lost Noam Chomsky, um, <laughs> I don't even know what to say at that point. But yeah, I, well, I, I think I think as with Trump, I think the number one criticism you can always make is where is the preparation and execution here? Um, I do think with I, – I honestly, I agree with him in his instincts that at some point we need to extricate ourselves from Syria. Um, we cannot turn it into – the 51st state or as an overseas possession or protectorate. I mean, maybe we need to bring back the idea of protectorates and just keep it real because that's really what we're doing um, in some of these situations. But it does need to be done in an orderly manner and in a way that people can plan. This reminds me of arguments Republicans had with um, some of Obama's uh, domestic policy with taxation where, well, businesses need to plan and, you know, they, they can't face the like, volatility of what their tax rates are going to be. I always think that with the foreign policy stuff where I often agree with Donald Trump's instinct, but I feel like nobody really knows if you're going to follow through with it. Uh, nobody really knows when it's going to happen. Nobody knows if you're going to get reversed. And I feel like we don't get the benefit of actually having a new foreign policy vision for the 21st century where the United States um, lives more within – its means as the greatest power, but not the only power. 
Yeah, and, and let me just make kind of a, I, I tend to agree with you on that, but I guess I'd make this one point. Um, and this is meant to be sort of, you know, prudential, pragmatic, I guess, to a certain extent. If, if there were just literally just dozens of U.S. troops in this area and they have effectively, just by being there, just by their presence, stopped the bloodbath that apparently is happening right now, um, that doesn't seem to be a massive investment compared to, say, invading Iraq, you know, compared to, say, nation building or, you know, turning that stretch of 20 miles into the 51st state. And, you know, without being sort of a ideological hardliner, either from a neoconservative viewpoint or a libertarian standpoint, if if you have that type of capability of just saying, look, we're going to bring in what's effectively a peacekeeping force and stop a bloodbath, you know, I, I don't see that as a major commitment or a great moral victory that, oh, we finally pulled the troops out when they actually, you know, by comparing what happened right before the announcement versus what's happening, like literally as we're speaking, uh, it seems like the troops being there actually were stopping yeah, I mean, I, some yeah, of the violence I think that's in correct. that area. I mean, what, do you, what do you think, Josiah? Like, I mean, because I kind of feel like, yeah, like, I mean, it's not like we're pulling that many individuals out. I, I mean, what is, I mean, it's basically like we just gave Erdogan, or Trump did, gave him the green light. That's basically what happened. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that may be part of the issue here is that there's no apparent uh, advantage to the United States one way or the other. You know, it's not like uh, it's not we are not bringing troops home. Right. So that there's not that issue. And it's not like, uh, you know, there, there, there's no clear objective, U.S. objective as opposed to a Turkish objective that we would care about. So, you know, what is like, what's the what's the rationale for it other than, you know, uh, just a kind of impulsive yeah, I mean, we, decision? By yeah, well, I mean, we do have to like um, bring I, I up know. ISIS. Uh, I think that. You know, um, from what I know and have read, um, Turkey's relationship to ISIS, to be entirely frank, may be similar to Pakistan's relationship to the Taliban. And um, I think that's why a lot of people are angry, because they feel like the Turks look the other way um, for many years and allowed foreign fighters to go into ISIS-occupied Syria through Turkey. I mean, that's objectively true. On the other hand, Turkey has 3.5 million Syrians within its border, so they're dealing with a lot of stuff too. But um, you know, Turkey's—you know—Erdogan is a, a Sunni chauvinist. He is. He has shown his cards in that way, and so um, you know, Turkey's power in northern Syria is going to be the rise of kind of like the Sunni Arabs again, and those are who are they—they're aligned with. And I believe Turkey is still. Um, on good terms with the Nostra Front, with some of these Al Qaeda branches that are in western Syria, northwestern Syria. So um, it's complicated, um, and I, you know, I, I think ultimately this should be and should have been a conversation. Um, I think the precipitousness is probably one of the. I mean, I feel like someone like me who probably would be wanting to defend Trump's instinct, dovish instinct here doesn't really know what to say just because of the execution while people who are opposed to his instincts they have very clear reasons for why they're opposed and 
you know, they're giving you like the, their 22 bullet points and, and all this stuff. And it looks like Trump is kind of being, I don't know. I mean, he seems like he's willing to reverse in some ways, at least rhetorically. So I don't know. Um, it's weird. It's a weird situation. Um, I want to, yeah. Yeah. Let me just say one, let me just say one other point to close out. Cause I, I absolutely agree that it should be like a more deliberate, you know, conversation or whatever. However, you know, it does occur to me that uh, there really wasn't a conversation involved with the troops getting put there in the first place, right? I I mean, there was, you know, back in uh, 2013, I guess, there was a bit of a conversation of whether we should do airstrikes uh, against the Assad because of chemical weapons attacks or the stuff related to that, and that was ultimately decided no, we shouldn't do that. And then, and there was, you know, part of the argument there was, no, 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 we, we need to stay out of Syria. And then somehow, despite that, we ended up being involved and having troops in Syria and other things. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like a weird, uh, thing where we, the U S gets entangled in one of these conflicts over the world without really any discussion. And then, when there are attempts to alter that arrangement, uh, you know, then people get upset about, well, we can't break the commitments that we made, you know, without with, you know, without any sort of public yeah, discussion I mean, or commitment. It's like the frog boiling in the first place. Yeah, go on, Doug. Let me make one. I was gonna say, let me. I'd like to. I'd like to make one more. One more comment, and it might even segue into something else. Uh, you know, I don't want to sort of get into sort of David from sort of speculation about what Trump was thinking, because, uh, you know, it was some of his tweets were pretty conspiratorial and I don't necessarily buy them. But it seems to me that this would be a proper area of congressional oversight. Uh, I would like to, you know, I'm not saying this is part of some impeachment inquiry, but it seems to me that it, this was not. Uh, there, it's not obvious that this was well thought out. It's not obvious that this was um, part of some, uh, you know, pursuing U.S. national interest. And it seems that this is something that a mature Congress fulfilling its role should be asking questions about so that we have greater transparency about what motivated this and why now. And, and even if even if it's the right decision to pull these troops away from this from this front, um, why could we have given our allies more notice instead of declaring it publicly with a White House statement? If, they, if Turkey announces that they are investigating Joe <laughs> Biden, then, then we'll know. All right. Um, okay, so like, let's move on Absolutely. more explicitly to domestic. Um, I'm curious. Um, so in the last couple of days, uh, Jonah Goldberg um, and uh, Steve Hayward um, announced their new enterprise, The Dispatch. And... Um, it seems like, you know, Jonah left uh, National Review. Hayward was uh, basically the weekly standard was dissolved at the end of last year, which was a neoconservative, more neoconservative publication. And so they're they're coming together. And they, they have, you know, I'm not going to use the word poached, but David, David Frunch is moving from National Review, where Goldberg also was until recently, um, to the dispatch. And so, you know, they're creating this new um, operation. It's going to be conservative leaning in terms of the reporting but it's really going to be focused on reporting is what they're saying it reminds me of what um tucker carlson 
aim to do with the Daily Caller and what he said in 2009 at CPAC that conservatives need to do their own reporting and you know have their own type of journalism that's more than just reactive commentary and you know frankly bloviating. Um, so I mean I can see what they're trying to do there. Um, they're focusing on a subscription model, um, not going to do too much advertising. So that's interesting. Um, I guess my big question is. I don't really understand why Jonah Goldberg and now David French, I guess, he's not a founder, but he left National Review. Why couldn't something like National Review, um, you know, do this in-house by hiring some reporters? They've had some reporters that have gone to other places, you know? Um, And so, like, I mean, what's going on there? And um, then later maybe we can talk about the dispatch and its prospects. First off, let me say I, I usually like to take the approach that the host is always right. Um, but okay, believe, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I believe that you want to refer to S- Stephen Hayes. I'm not a reporter, uh, okay. Joe, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, sorry, you uh, want to go first? Sure. So, uh, you know, I would say uh, it's an interesting venture. When it, whenever there is one of these, uh, you know, new publications uh, that are started, I think it is worth taking a little bit of time to see whether how it works in practice is similar to the, like, intro pitch. You know, so, for example, Vox, you remember Vox, Vox when they first started – their big pitch of like what they were going to do is, you know, instead of doing uh day to day journalism, they were going to have like these kind of card stacks that would be long term articles about a different subject that people, people could refer to. And it was going to be like a different way to do news because it was like long term news. And that lasted, a, I don't know, a couple weeks. Right. And what Vox turned into is something very different, successful in its own way, but very different. So I, I wonder, you know, what, what, when I, I was listening to uh, Jonah and Steve Hayes on Jonah's remnant podcast, and they were talking about their vision for what they're going to do. And it was not going to like, no, basically, you know, subscriber base, lots of newsletters, uh, few articles, uh, not clickbaity stuff, and you know we'll we're heavily reported. That all sounds like it could be interesting. We'll have to see whether it they can actually swim against the grain of the way media and journalism operates now to that extent. Yeah, no, I I agree with all that. I I think that. I think the model that they're starting with is somewhat limited, but I guess it's the the, the benefit to it is by having sort of this lean model, uh, they might be able to operate at a profit for uh, for a while. I know that they've raised like six million dollars, uh, but but keeping operations lean and not trying to. I think I think I saw that they're planning to actually only post like four articles a day or something. And so, with a subscription model, with a hand, you know, with a lean staff, um, they they might make this, uh, you know, m- make a start of it. And 
I'm skeptical that this approach is going to last them very long. I think there's going to be a temptation for them to to become something more like a national review and and to broaden their reach. But um, you know, I think as a just from like a business perspective, I think that I think that what they're doing is interesting from a perspective of a, a sort of I guess you'd say a lean start. Um, they've got some um, investors behind them. Um, and they're not they're not trying to overreach, which I think is at least right now, it looks like they're trying to show some financial discipline, which I think is encouraging. But I, I suspect that the model will change, too. Um, I think the, the, the big surprising news was that David French um, left. Um, you know, the, the news that, that Goldberg and Hayward, <laughs> you've got me saying Goldberg and Hayes uh, uh, were planning to do this. It's been out there for a while. And interestingly enough, I met. Um, Jonah Goldberg about two years ago and quickly in that conversation he was talking about Steve Hayes so I would uh, you know I don't want to speculate that this has been in the works that far back but you know I think they've been kind of kicking the tires on what they might do together for some time the David French piece is is a little surprising Um, you know I think that in on one hand I think that National Review has done a nice job of supporting David French in the famous French Sarabarami Wars. Um, and so in that sense, uh, if there was any concern that maybe Jonah Goldberg wasn't quite getting uh, enough support from National Review, or if it was um, somehow that he was being reined in by Trumpist Rich Lowry, I, I don't see where you would have that speculation or you know where you could base any speculation like on that with David French, because I felt like they were actually supporting him pretty well. So I, I know that there's definitely a temptation to say National Review's in trouble uh, because you had Kevin Williamson leave and then quickly come back. And now you've had Jonah Goldberg and David French leave. And these are their top talent in my mind. Uh, of course, that shows my point of view um, as opposed to saying Victor. No, or- no I mean, I think, I think if you're going to say who's marquee, it has to be Goldberg and more recently French, yeah, right? Maybe Williamson as well, who's still there. I mean, there are people that come and go. And I mean, let's be honest, like National Review is an entry point for a lot of people oh, yeah. as they move on in their journalism like, career. Like and then yourself, people <laughs> you get published there. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Um, I don't. I don't have a journalism career. I, I don't want to put that out there, um, giving people the wrong impression. Uh, but I mean, but there are other people who do reporting who are young, mm-hmm. and then they move on to other things. Goldberg and French, they were not in that category. Right. They were standards. And so I'm a little, I'm not worried. I'm just curious as to what's going on because um, Goldberg was frank that Rich was not happy that he was leaving and tried right. to convince him not right. to, you know? Um, and, I- you know, like, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's I mean, from my perspective, and it's not like I've really got any, you know, real insights into this, but it's I think it's public knowledge that, well, they, you know, we talked to Rich Lowry. He, he tells a story and, you know, Buckley before him talked about how that, you know, that they they've never really run a profit. Um, and so they have the National Review Institute um, uh, side of the house, which is a nonprofit. And for disclosure, I'm an NRI regional fellow. Not that that really means anything, but so, I mean, I've got sort of certain affinity for the folks. Um, but that's a nonprofit side. And so they have to, you know, supplement the for profit side with private donors. And, I, you know, I, I understand how it is with donors that if you're asking them to donate to something where there's so many different places to donate and you take an approach like National Review's always taken, which is 
we want to have a broad tent and we want to we want to you know show you the different ways of you know sort of from on the far libertarian side like a kevin williamson to a more trumpist conrad black or victor davis hansen you know in normal times like say in the bush years and the obama years having that broad tent probably brings a lot of people together but under the current climate it's a lot like infighting and i you know i could see that maybe that's just difficult to even though that i really love this national review approach of showing sort of all sides within on the right if you will um broadly speaking right now it's it may be that much more difficult in, in, in the Trump era. I would say uh, that, you know, it is kind of, there is a, has always been a bit of a churn uh, with magazines like National Review. You know, Rod Dreher, he used to be a big National Review guy, and then he moved on a while back. Ryan, of course, uh, has gone on to head the Manhattan Institute. And they do have, uh, you know, they still have, I think, a number of interesting writers there, Michael Brennan Doherty, um, uh, Kevin Williamson, as you mentioned. George Willsback. Yeah, right. Yes, right, 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 right. Uh, and uh, Alexander uh, Sanctus, uh, to name just a few. So I don't know. Um, you know, I would think that, like, uh, Goldberg in particular is probably a, a big loss for them just because he's got his own you know, he's got his own brand, right? In fact, I think, you know, maybe part of the issue there is just that his his brand got big enough that he can set out on his own and he doesn't need uh, the affiliation of a, you know, National Review name or something. Um, so so that's, that, that's a loss, but I don't, I mean, as Doug said, none of these magazines actually make money from subscribers. It's all a matter of, you know, can they get donors <laughs> to make up the difference? And uh I don't. I I have, don't really have any reason to think that that would not continue to be true for uh, National Review. Well, and and one other point too. This is a rather um, friendly break, if you will, because I, when I looked this morning, and I think it's still probably true if you look at this very moment. One of the one of the stories on the front page of National Review Online is Jonah Goldberg. So it's not like it's not like they've left and he's not going to be doing any writing there from what I can tell. I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally I totally think it's friendly and I you know, I, I don't think that there's anything you know, there's no problems at National Review. I just think I, I do wonder about um having to navigate this huge tent when there's a lot of uh you know, I mean some of the uh, so I mean the ditch I mean the dispatch um it, it kind of seems like it is going to be um, the reporting version of the bulwark. If you, it's like a never Trump hub, you know. And so, um, I do wonder about what's what's happening there. Like, what is the audience? What is the audience for a subscription model of basically, you know, it's going to be perceived as never Trump reporting, you know? Right. Well, but I, I would pause there because uh, you know I've heard this before from from Goldberg, um, and, I, and I think I'm probably sympathetic to this myself, uh, the way I saw an article in Axios this past week describing this is the bulwark, you know, Crystal's sort of very adamantly, um, you know, never Trump, um, sort of almost to the extreme, where Goldberg would describe what he's doing and what the dispatch is going to do as Trump skeptical. 
And I personally like that because I think that that is in keeping with the Buckley tradition, which is uh, trying to be, um, you know, ideologically basing, basing your opinions based on how you arrive at uh, ideas as opposed to uh, loyalty to a party and, and then, you know, bringing some discipline to your own side, your own movement. Uh, Buckley certainly did that. So I think I think there's going to be a difference very much in tone, but I think it's going to be more than just style, if you will. Um, I think that there's a lot of almost animus that, in my mind that um, that is driving Crystal, where I don't see that from Goldberg, where I think it's much more trying to convey ideas. But that's my perspective. Yeah, what do you think, Josiah? Uh, so I would say that there is a, uh, a scale, uh, of Trump skepticism that goes, uh, all the way from like, uh, someone like Max Boot or Jennifer Rubin, uh, at, at a 10 where if, you know, Trump says it's a lovely day, then, uh, they feel compelled as a matter of principle to say that it, you know, rain is better than sunshine, uh, all the way down to, you know, Folks who are are basically, uh, uh, you know, on, on board uh, on the Trump train, and uh, Jonah is definitely not as high on that rankings as uh, Crystal or uh, uh, the folks at the Bulwark. But you know, he he definitely is up there. I you know his podcast is called The Remnant, and uh, if you read his writings and listen to his podcast, there's you know. There's definitely an un, uh, undertone of exasperation with the direction that the conservative movement has taken uh, in the in the Trump era. So I, you know, I would say it, it's probably a little bit, you know, to, to describe it as simply Trump skepticism. I think is probably underselling it a little bit. Uh, well, and he also describes it as right. post Well, I mean, the problem, and I've used the same, the, the problem, which I think, but I think that makes it much more sustainable than, you know, every morning I think that Bill Crystal, you know, first thing he probably does is go goes and reads Trump's tweets and, and finds a reason to be angry for the day. And that's not going to be sustainable once Trump's Right, yeah. I mean, the problem with post-Trump is that, office. you know, Trump's still around, right? It, it sort of reminds me of... Um, like left-wing academics will sometimes refer to late capitalism. And it's always seemed to me that that there's an element of wishful thinking in that, like it's going to be over soon. Uh, and I don't know, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I hope that they uh, have prepared themselves for the possibility that it will not be. Yeah. I mean, he is, a, he's a media, he's a media celebrity with his own platform. And that's still, that's still, um, going to hold i do think like aside from jonah goldberg i mean steve hayes uh you know he's not um you know he was an editor i mean he he does a lot of writing but uh, he's not as prominent as someone like right now like david french who also who's extremely uh trump skeptical um and so you know i'm looking at um the subscription for something like the information which is kind of out of silicon valley it's kind of like wall street journal but really Silicon Valley focused and it's, you know, got like a $39 a month. And then there's like a 799 a year plan. 
Um, you know, it's been around since 2013 and it's doing well, but that's partly because it was really focused on a particular industry. And if you're in that industry, you are going to subscribe to the information because um, it will give you things that even the Wall Street Journal will not give you. And, you know, the issue with something like National Review or uh, Mother Jones, you know, these political magazines is people aren't going to pay that much to get the latest information because it's not news you can use, right? And so I, I wonder about the subscription model for something like that. Yes, yeah, so that's the question. I, I mean, I think I, I assume that part of the idea is that people will be drawn because, you know, they'll want to get the Goldberg content. And then once they're there, they'll get hooked on uh, the other stuff, the reporting or whatever. Steve Hayes, of course, is not a marquee name the same way that Jonah or David French are, but he does actually have a, a history of like actual reporting. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that kind of is where that factors in would be my guess. Doug. No, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think that, uh, they, I, I've, I've, I suspect that Goldberg probably knows his demographic and knows that the typical Jonah Goldberg reading or, or the typical David French reader, um, they probably are middle class and upper middle class. They're um, likely to, to not really feel whatever this is. I think $100 a, uh, not a, $100 a year, $10 a month, I think, is the subscription. Um, that may sound like a lot, but when you break that down into two or three cups of yeah. coffee a month, it's to you know to the typical reader i don't think that they're going to really notice that so i think that in that sense if you if he, he knows his demographic well i think this is viable at least as a way to get the get the entity up and running yeah that's true that's true i mean i i do wonder um you know there was the there was the uh rumor that if trump had lost he would have started his own television network um, and I'm seeing some things today about how he's getting very frustrated with Fox News uh, because some people at Fox News are not kowtowing to him appropriately. And I wonder if he's you know, eventually going to start the Trump network um, if he doesn't get reelected in 2020, in which case, uh, are we going to be able to have a, you know, this post-Trump um, world that people like, I think, Jonah Goldberg and David French and uh, frankly, a lot of conservative intellectuals are looking to the post-Trump world. And, you know, I've talked to Josiah about this, um, you know, and I, I've talked to you as well, Doug, about this. You know, like pro-Trump individuals that are, um, you know, intellectuals of really high, high, high caliber as opposed to just, you know, frankly, screamers, uh, there just aren't that many. I mean, there are people who are Trump sympathetic or – you know, support Trump, but they don't speak on it that much. It's not their thing to be, you know, the Trump Tribune. Like maybe someone like Darren Darren Beatty is the best example of someone who's like an intellectual of a high caliber who is unabashedly uh, pro-Trump and in favor of that worldview. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting because I think a lot of conservative intellectuals are just holding their breath uh, and just hoping that this movement passes that this time passes and they can go back to business as usual i do wonder if the dispatch is a little bit like that because 
you know, these guys seem like they're all fusionists, right? And for listeners who don't know what that means, it's just the fusion of libertarianism with social conservatism and also to some extent a foreign policy anti-communism um, in the 20th century that defined uh, that defined conservatism to a great extent. And it seems like they are just rewarming this old, um, you know, which like I don't necessarily oppose on the on the merits, but it seems very twentieth century to me. What do you guys think about that? Well, there, there's two there's two points to that. So the first point is I would say when it comes to the sustainability of the Trump worldview, I'd say the demographics don't support that. I think it's a boomer heavy, um, you know, uh, worldview. Uh, can you hear me? I think I just lost my connection for a second, but it's a boomer heavy worldview. And I think it's also a very impatient worldview. Like they know that their time in political power is right here, right now. And so they want to they want to make a lot of changes very rapidly because it's got a narrow window. I when it comes to the fusionism point uh, and, and, and back to that, that, I think that if you look at uh, the demographics of younger people, they don't share this, uh, younger people don't share this Trumpist worldview. And so I don't think that the Trump approach is going to work on a sustained basis. But the second point, your point about the fusionism, I think that remains to be seen. Um, and I'm going to let Josiah talk about that a little bit, but I know that there's a lot of people that are very skeptical that that approach is going to work post-Trump in the sense of there's these graphs out there that show that there's really very few people that uh, very few people that align themselves as being fiscally conservative and socially liberal, which is often the way this fusionist group are portrayed, rightly or wrongly. So I think it remains to be seen on the fusionist side if that's the wave of the yeah, future. Yeah, I would say not. first, my perspective is that I view Trump as more of a symptom than a cause here. I think you. If you look around the world, you can see in country after country uh, a similar sort of shift in the right to more populism, more nationalism, uh, less embrace of you know small government free market principles or whatever to the extent that those ever existed. Uh, and if you look at the uh, demographic trends, uh, you know, uh, uh, Doug says that Trumpism isn't very popular among the young, but yeah, free market economics isn't very popular among the young either. Uh, so I, I think what we are kind of seeing in the U.S. is uh, there's two big factors. One is we are becoming a more secular nation, uh, and that is getting redirected into uh, you know the 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 energies and disciplines of religion are getting redirected into other areas uh, for good or ill. And then another thing is the uh, economic prospects of people. There's been a big uh, divergence between those with college educations and those without college educations. And traditionally, the Republican Party was the party of people who had a bachelor's degree. So people with just a high school degree, most of them voted Democrat. People with advanced degrees, most of them voted Democrat, but if you had a college degree, you voted Republican. 
And in 2016, we saw that flip where now the Republican Party is the party of people uh, without college degrees more so, and the Democratic Party is winning among those who do have college degrees. So that that I think is a trend that is likely to continue, and it it it's inevitable that that's going to reorient uh, politics uh, and probably make fusionism. Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to see how the Republican Party can long term remain a kind of fusionist party if that continues to be the case, and that's their base. Yeah. All right. So uh, I want to end um, with just uh, uh, you know uninformed punditry of, that like nobody really cares about but like you know we might as well express our opinions who do you guys think is going to win the democratic nomination um i am putting my money at the highest probability that it's warren <laughs> that scares me um yeah warren is uh, so the, um, first of all, i'll say preference then i'll say I'll talk on it a little bit more. Uh, Warren is the one that scares me the most, other than uh, Bernie Sanders, who after his recent heart attack, I'm not as concerned about, because uh, I don't think that he's viable. Uh, but Warren, based on her economic views, uh, and, and, and not just, there, a, a lot of them have sort of nutty economic views, but she seems to be the one that is most organized in her nutty views. And that's what concerns me is I think that she would put in real effort to uh, impose uh, her policies that I think would be very detrimental to um, to the economy, to my clients as a lawyer. Um, so that would have a direct impact on me, right? If my clients suffer, I suffer. So I'm very concerned about her. I see everyone taking her seriously as if she's the front runner when I don't think she is quite yet. I think the polls are still indicating Joe Biden's ahead. Um, and I'm starting my own personal little campaign and it, my personal campaigns mean so much. Um, I think the Republicans should be voting in Democratic primaries to kind of de-risk um, the, the, the general election. So if Warren is the uh, most problematic candidate, and in my mind she is, Republicans, since there's not going to be a Republican primary to speak of, they ought to go vote in the Democratic primary, even if that means registering temporarily as a Democrat. Um, and I, I and it's, it's not just me. I think that probably as we get closer, there's probably going to be more independents and maybe even some Republicans that think about doing that. And then that could actually have an effect on, you know, whether or not uh, Warren really has a surge. So I have no idea who is going to win the nomination. I, I fear that, you know, pundits typically like there's a danger of recency bias where whoever seems to be doing well recently people say oh yeah that person is going to continue to win um i would note that you know i look at the political prediction markets a lot and hillary clinton has been inching up those uh, prediction markets she's currently at 11 percent to win the democratic nomination even though she is not a, a formally running so particularly if Joe Biden stumbles in the next month or two, I would not be surprised if she jumps into the race. And it's, of course, no guarantee that she would be able to get the nomination, but it's not uh, outside the realm of possibility that that would happen either. So I don't know if that makes Doug uh, feel better or worse, but there you go. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's been great to have you guys on, just like comment on this stuff. So, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting, I guess we're like 
is it a year? Like, eh, it's a little bit more than a year out um, from the election, and so um, maybe we'll got we'll have you guys on and do this, uh, you know, simul podcast uh, between Urbane Cowboys and Brown Pundits more and more frequently as time goes on. That sounds great. All right, I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> <laughs>